the pleasures of the body are part of what being alive is all about. Today on The Recovery, we're talking about sex and how a small but influential campaign challenged the medicalization of common sexual problems. Our challenge was to create a space for another model of sexuality, for a challenge to the medicalization of sexuality, and we succeeded. Hello, and welcome to The Recovery, the podcast about making healthcare more sustainable for people and the planet, produced by Cochrane Sustainable Healthcare and co-published by the BMJ. I'm Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ, and my co-host is Ray Moynihan from Bond University in Australia. Thanks, Fee. And today's conversation is with Dr. Leonor Tifa, a psychologist, sex therapist and academic based in New York, who's developed a global reputation for challenging attempts to turn common sexual problems into disorders or dysfunctions. She launched a feminist campaign called The New View, which for me is a powerful case study in how civil society can stand up to commercial and professional forces constantly trying to turn the ordinary ups and downs of our lives into the signs and symptoms of medical conditions. To start off, Leonor lays out the background to her campaign and how it was inspired by her time working with urologists, the doctors who specialised in the urinary tract and the male reproductive system. The 1980s and 90s were revolutionary times in certain branches of medicine uh, that I happened to be, just by the luck of the draw, working in. Medicine was really moving into a, a business model in ways that had not happened before, at least to my understanding. And I, w- I was a psychologist um, sexologist with a history of research in animal sexuality and then human sexuality. Um, and it was difficult actually to get a job. So I was working in urology departments in several different hospitals in New York City. So this started in the, in the middle of the 1980s. And during that time, Urology was really undergoing a, a transformation totally unrelated to sex, but then it became related to sex. There were kind of new initiatives starting and old initiatives ending. So urologists found sexuality as a topic um, to be a new uh, opportunity, um, a new opportunity for research, for career development and for uh, prof- profitability, profit-making. And I got hired just because urologists really were not knowledgeable about sexuality. And they, um, they opened male sexual dysfunction centers, and this was even before Viagra. I mean, we're talking well before Viagra. Uh, they opened these centers really without much knowledge. So psychologists were were being hired and that's how I got into it. I don't think I truly understood what was going on. Um, The only medicine I knew that had anything to do with sexuality really was psychiatry and they hadn't made all that great a job of it. 
And so the idea of real doctors, non-psychiatrists, uh, moving into medicine, you know, it seemed like, well, what was wrong with that? You know, maybe they would find problems and cure problems. And I, I thought that that might have potential. By the end of the 1990s, Viagra was famously launched to treat erectile dysfunction in men. And around the same time, claims started to emerge that 43% of women may suffer from female sexual dysfunction, including a widespread so-called medical disorder of low desire. But as Leonor Tifa explains, the 43% figure was a gross exaggeration and had actually come from the answer to just one question in a big sociology survey about the common ups and downs of all our sex lives. And there was a chart that tabulated the percentage of people who said, yes, I have problems with um, erection, ejaculation, desire, pleasure, interest, satisfaction, just a whole bunch of things sort of uh, in a very helter-skelter fashion. And if you add it all together, turns out that 43% of the women said they had one or more of these problems. I mean, it was really quite meaningless from a, I think, from a medical research point of view. But the industry and the urologists uh, jumped on this number. What is 43%, Ray? It's practically half. I mean, that is a very large number of people who are talking about having problems. So Viagra is approved in March of 1998. And by May, uh, people were saying, and where's the Viagra for women? And I, I was like, I can't tell you how staggeringly surprised I was to hear this question because no woman... I knew, and I've known a lot my whole life, who was unhappy with her sex life for one or another or many reasons had ever said, well, and I, you know, I wish there was a pill to fix it. People were just not walking around thinking that they were, you know, I, I wish I, I were less anxious. I wish I liked my body better. I wish I, you know, hadn't had that religious education. I wish, you know, I wish you know, I didn't have two screaming children in the other room, whatever. Uh, but they they didn't. So, you know, the idea that there would be a Viagra for women was kind of a surprise. Can I ask, um, Leonor, um, it's very, very interesting hearing you talk. I mean, it's fair to say, I would imagine that Viagra was a game changer for men. I mean, it did, it did change the picture for men. It was an effective treatment for erectile dysfunction, not to discount any of the kind of other aspects of sexuality and, and psychology and, and partner relationship, but it, it was a game changer. It did mean that some men who hadn't been able to maintain an erection now could. And I've often wondered, I mean, as you say, the timing was that pretty much Viagra comes in accidentally discovered and suddenly, you know, massively marketed. Uh, and then women um, suddenly confronted with a man who had previously been becoming sexually dormant, <laughs> so to speak, were suddenly, you know, having to perform in a way that perhaps their relationship had allowed them to think they might not have to. Or, you know what I mean, that that part of the relationship was sort of on, on the wane. And I mean, does that seem to you to be a, a reasonable kind of one aspect that, that led to this sudden interest in females, female sexual dysfunction? I mean, I take your point that it wasn't about a pill for the women, but the idea that women were suddenly having to find, rediscover their sexual function in, in light of Viagra. 
Well, clearly the expectations for uh, sexual life were being ratcheted up in the in the public discourse, and what used to be a kind of a you know a, a model of um, you know early excitement and then um, relationship or marital con- continuity and then decline. That model was no longer. Um, Popular now, it was a kind of. Uh, there's no reason to ever stop having sexual relations, and not just sexual relations, but penetrative intercourse. I mean, you can have sex uh, without having uh, intercourse. You know, there's pleasure. There, what is sex anyway? What are the what are the boundaries, the parameters? What's the definition? That's a big part of the way psychologists, at least look at intimacy, but the idea that sex is defined as this penis in vagina activity for which you need a hard penis and and a receptive vagina, never mind the people that they're attached to. Um, So that did change the nature of things for sure. Can I just um, pick up on your point about the, there wasn't this sense that women were out there, to, you know, wanting a pill to to correct this, you know, this newly defined idea of, of female sexual dysfunction. But hormone replacement therapy, you know, ha- has has been to some extent that pill, hasn't it? You know, helping women to maintain a certain usefulness and, you know, addressing issues around menopause and also you know, vaginal dryness and all of the kind of things that might might have made sex less appealing. Um, so, I mean, the, I, in terms of the timing of this, the, the first HRT came in, I don't know when, in the 60s, 70s? Yes, in the 60s. Maybe, uh, so, so that was already in play, wasn't it, when this was happening? And But that wasn't sufficient or that wasn't, I mean, what, what, how did that fit into the picture? Well, you know, hormonal replacement therapy has a long and checkered career. Maybe we're even talking about the 40s and the 50s. You know, Feminine Forever uh, was a, a lot a lot earlier, that book. And I'm not sure what date's coming to mind, but it could even be the 50s or the 40s. And the idea is that it was about youthfulness. You know, the focus on the dry vagina is a kind of a recent thing. Uh, along with this nomenclature of sexual dysfunction. Uh, and there are a lot more um, pain syndrome issues now than, than ever before, and we might be curious about that. But, um, you know, hormones are, are these drugs for rejuvenation throughout the 20th century, uh, and they have all sorts of mythical and uh, metaphoric purposes. And you make the point about, you know, the screaming children in the, in the next room and, um, you know, thinking about what, 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 it, what is it that constitutes, I guess, low desire. And a lot of it will be fatigue. You know, the first child born, second child born, you know, women just tired and distracted by the kind of emotional attachment to a, to a baby and the, the husband, you know, being, being neglected. I mean, I mean, I'm just painting a picture of, of of what what brings that kind of dis- mismatch then between male desire and female availability because the woman is exhausted um, and not terribly interested <laughs> after the birth of her first child. Well, in, no, you know, I, th- I think I, 
I think I'm afraid I think it's it's even deeper and more difficult and more complicated than that because what is the purpose of the intimate act? What is the purpose of the sexual act for the husband and for the wife? And we've found that there there are quite different um goals in many cases that for men it's a kind of um I don't know um justification, that isn't quite the right word, of their masculinity. It's proof that they're not dead, that they're not gone, that they're not finished. For women, it's a a different ballgame. The desire to be sexual was not about the penis and vagina, the hard penis, the wet vagina, the orgasm. It wasn't largely about that. It was about the validation. That was the word I was looking for, the validation Mm -hmm. of the intimacy. I'm desirable. He wants me. I'm beautiful. Um, He treats me well. I'm relaxing here. Um, You know, so the need for the erection, the need for the intercourse is different, really different. Um, we talked about, you know, is there a condition of low low desire and, you know, should it be treated with, with, with a drug? And I think we're all of the view that that, that isn't the way it should be treated. But I just wondered about, you know, and, and we talked about the, the mismatch sometimes between male and female s- sexual desire. I, I just wondered about, you know, for lesbian and bisexual women, um, you know, is, is, is this a problem that emerges in, in those kind of relationships or, or less so? There, Do you see, what, I, mean, I don't know if I framed that question well. What I'm trying to say is, sorry, I might find a better way to frame it when I've heard your answer. <laughs> there's, uh, I, I always say that 110% of the people have sexual problems, that the person does not exist on the planet who doesn't have a sexual problem because sex is so problematically treated in this culture, in these in these cultures by religion, by um you know, all, all forms of, of, uh, of cultural exp- exp- expression so that, you know, people think that sex is a natural thing, you know, that you, you should just take your clothes off and go to bed and everything will be not just good, but great because it's all built in. And, and of course I believe totally the opposite. The first book I ever wrote is called sex is not a natural act because I really think that you know, reproduction may be built in, uh, you know, respiration is built in, digestion is built in, but sex is a, a social construct. And so the, the way that people perform sexual activity and experience sexual activity and derive meaning and benefit from sexual activity, all of that is learned. So, you know, you ask about different subgroups, you know, I would say which subgroups and where and you know, how do we ask the questions and what defines satisfaction? Dissatisfaction is everywhere because people are, are not taught or given the opportunity to learn how to give and receive uh, basic physical pleasure. You're listening to The Recovery. Today, talking about the problem of medicalization, part of the broader problem of overdiagnosis, driven in part by expanding disease definitions, which label more and more people, threatening the very sustainability of health systems, which are already stretched dealing with genuine need. In Leonor Tifa's view, 
while doctors might be able to help when there's a medical problem, a lot of sexual difficulties won't benefit from a medical label. Sexual activity is done with the body. Whatever part of the body it's done with, it's done with some part of the body. And things can go wrong with the body. Uh, you know, neurological things can go wrong and dermatological things can go wrong and, and endocrinological things, all kinds of things can go wrong with the body and the body needs to be fixed. It's not the sex that's the problem. It's the body. And I, I have to say, Ray, that for me, the most powerful analogy is to dancing. You know, for many people, dancing is a great joy and a great pleasure. And for other people, it's a great source of frustration and awkwardness and misery and disappointment and failure and self-criticism. So what do you do if you're having problems with the dancing? Well, you don't go to an orthopedist. You know, if you're having problems with the ankle, the knee, the shoulder, the wrist, the waist, you go to the orthopedist and you say, you know, I keep trying to dance, but I can't bend down. (laughs) I can't, I can't, twirl around because I can't get my ankle to work. Okay, come right in here. I'm looking at your ankle. But does the orthopedist ask you if you want to, you know, square dance or if you want to slow dance or if you want? No, it's none of the orthopedist business or more to the point. The orthopedist acknowledges the limits of his or her knowledge. Uh, uh, Unfortunately, the physician, the, the urologist in large part are doesn't acknowledge the limits of their knowledge. And so you go and you say, I have sexual problems. They say right away, you know, let me measure it and treat it rather than, you know, what what does sex mean for you? Why do you want to have it? Uh, what activities do you want to do? How did you learn about that? You know, people, I don't, I don't like to be touched. I, 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 well, I won't go on and on, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's the wrong model, Ray. Sex and medicine, the medical model of sex, it's the wrong model. So yes, lots of people have problems, but it's because they have medical problems. They have a spinal cord problem or a dermatologic. They don't want to be touched because they have a, a, a dermatological problem. Let's treat that. But there are other people who don't want to be touched because they're they're phobic or they're frightened or they're nauseated, and that's, uh, that's a whole nother direction. By the late 1990s, Leonore Tifa had become concerned that an alliance of doctors and drug companies was trying to promote new labels and new pills, which could bring many women more harm than good. So she decided to set up a grassroots David versus Goliath campaign called The New View, which started to generate information for the public at first through opinion pieces or op-eds in newspapers, directly challenging claims that half of all women suffered from female sexual dysfunction. The urologist called a meeting to define female sexual dysfunction and to start the journal and to start the conferences. And I thought, all right, I am the right person. I was by then, you know, a senior person in my field. I had a, a lot of networking possibilities. I didn't have any money, but uh, fortunately, email had been invented by then. Um, and so I, I uh, you know, I published articles and op-eds, said, 
come to Boston and, and let's see what we can do to get in the way of this inevitability that, that seems to be about to happen where female sexuality is going to be captured by, by the medical model and, and, and treated the way men are treated in urology, which is really not to their sexual benefit. I was just going to ask which um, outlets, if you like, were most effective or most um, accessible to you in terms of, you know, the mass media, the the uh, newspapers or, or um, you know, the academic journals. Which, you know, at the, you at the beginning, you know, I had no experience in this. I, I was a complete amateur. Talk about a self-taught activist. Uh, that That is me. Uh, I had been a feminist. So the first thing I did was I published uh, an uh, an op-ed in a feminist um, magazine called Sojourners that um, came out of Boston. And I wrote, you know, I'm going to be in Boston. There's this meeting. There's this so-called medical disorder, this so-called uh, medical unmet need. And I'd like to have some help. And I'm a Unitarian. I'm a Jewish Unitarian Universalist, not too uncommon here. And uh, so I got a, a, a room at the UUA, the Unitarian Universalist Association. I asked them for a room all day. And I just said in this Sojourners thing, if you want to help me, please show up. And then what happened is kind of magical. Really, eight women showed up. A couple came from California, graduate students, but they're social workers, educators, a couple of nurses, um, and a reporter from the Boston Globe showed up, whom I had never heard of, had never been in contact with, but she thought this sounded interesting. <laughs> so uh, we had this meeting. And uh, we're talking about what should we do? You know, should we dress up and, you know, have some sort of, um, you know, a feminist art thing out on the sidewalk? Uh, and what, what do we do? So they said, well, why don't we make up copies of this Sojourner thing? I also had had an op-ed with a colleague in the, in the L.A. Times. So we had these two pieces of paper. So... Uh, and and then I, I I called. I'm so naive, God. I called the conference from this room in the UUA, and I said, "Would it be all right if we handed out some things tomorrow at the conference?" And they said, "Well, of course not. I mean, who do you think you are?" Well, so that was fuel to the fire. So uh, we decided. Well, that made it much more fun that we would definitely hand things out. Uh, instead of, you know, dressing up like, I don't know, ice cubes or something on the street. Um, I think ice cubes was one of the, I can't remember for sure, one of the ideas that we would dress up as frigid women or something in need <laughs> of medical help. Uh, but, you know, we only had one day and we couldn't really put costumes together. So we handed out literature. So at the beginning, the answer is I published any place that I could. And, um, you know, it takes a long time to get something into print. So I put things in all the psychology, sexuality journals. They took years. And really, it wasn't until uh, Ray Moynihan actually published this paper in the BMJ in 2003 that anyone acknowledged 
that we were doing anything. And, you know, we started in 1999. So these were long years of writing things, handing them out, trying to get noticed. Things were in the pipeline. It took a long time. Yes, I did write that piece in, in 2003 in the in the British Medical Journal and the BMJ called The Making of a Disease, Female Sexual Dysfunction. And it was essentially drawing on the analysis that you and your colleagues, the the sort of feminist campaign, were promoting. And that, and, and so it was really just pulling apart this uh, massive marketing machinery that was trying to make a new disease. But, but, but I think the truth is that, you know, from your humble beginnings as a group of activists in Boston, uh, very quickly you started to generate a lot of public attention because I think, you know, the, the, the journalists and, and their readers obviously are interested in sex for a start, but they were also very interested in your narrative that was critiquing medicalization as it was happening. Um, and, and that's why I think this is such a powerful example because we, we have this medicalization happening across the spectrum in medicine. But it's rare that we see people actually taking to the streets, if you will, and taking to the media and taking to the medical journals to try and expose it. Often, I think the reason that people don't start these campaigns is that particularly within the academic world, there's a lot of politeness and a lot of manners that is a very valuable thing. But often it, it means people are reluctant to, to challenge or question their colleagues. But, but you didn't seem to have that reluctance, Leonor. Well, I was a senior person in the field. You know, I didn't have much to prove anymore. And I was self-employed. This is crucial. You know, I've, I've often said about uh, the female Viagra and so on, follow the money. It's, the money is, unfortunately, uh, so much of what's going on here, the, the mega billions of dollars uh, that seem to be available for lifestyle drugs. But I was I was self-employed by that point. In, I had a private practice of doing sex therapy, so I I had already published books and articles, hundreds, you know, in in the field of feminism and sexuality, and um, I had been trying to say we have to look at sexuality from women's point of view for a long time, and the irony was that this example proved to me even what I'd been talking about for 20 years. So I had a huge amount of stored up energy uh, that I was happy to devote to this because it had been what I had been devoting myself to since I became a feminist back in the early 70s. So Fiona, as editor-in-chief of the BMJ, you've taken an interest in this issue. You've watched this process of, of medicalization and the campaign to expose it and, 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 and try and combat it. What's been your interest as a, as a medical journal editor in that issue? Well, I think it's been um, a really interesting journey and one that, uh, you know, we've worked with many different people, but you, Ray, have been a great driver of it as well. And we did have a Too Much Madison campaign and an overdiagnosis and overtreatment uh, series, which I think really tried to take a very objective view of a whole range of um, conditions that were being medicalized and where there was, uh, in each case, a, a number of different drivers. A, a, a large one was commercial um, you know, gain by, by the pharmaceutical industry, but also doctors wanting to act, patients wanting doctors to do more 
um, you know, societal pressures, a whole host of, of things of that sort. And and I think the purpose of the series was really just to um, uh, sensitize medical professionals and patients to the risk that overdiagnosis, overtreatment was causing harm, adding cost. And of course, in relation to this podcast series as well, adding to the environmental um, pressure that, that, that medicine puts on puts on the planet. So um, I think it was a really important series, fantastic authors. We went through a whole host of different conditions, um, pre-diabetes, um, osteoporosis, um, uh, looking at thyroid cancer over-detection and over-treatment, um, lots of kind of things that were counterintuitive. People would assume that early detection of cancer was a good thing. Um, really, in in many cases, causing much more harm than good. Um, so I I think it was a really fantastic series. Tessa Richards at the BMJ led it, and and obviously you and others, Ray, were, were involved. And I, I'm extremely proud of it. And I think the important thing is that it doesn't stop there because the evidence continues to emerge, and um, the pressures that we talk about of of commercial drivers, um, doctors, you know, wanting to do more, patients demanding more. Those pressures continue. Um, and and we have to be really alert, alert to them. One of the concerns about the, the overtreatment, overdiagnosis has been around um, depression and anxiety and the use of SSRIs. Um, and of course, that has uh, a knock-on effect for, for sexual function um, and growing concerns about post-SSRI syndrome. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just really interested in your thoughts about that because, uh, you know, there is there is a, an epidemic of mental health problems, and and, and if those are tr- treated as they are being treated widely by SSRIs, we have the risk, I think, of of a lot of people potentially suffering from post SSRI sexual dysfunction. Um, I'd I'd really welcome your thoughts on that. Yeah, I I am very concerned. I I would also say, and you know, I don't know about this epidemic of, of mental health problems. I'm not sure I would characterize things that way. I think the world is very troubled and people are are having a, a lot of stress and a lot of challenges to, to their lives. And we have a variety of ways that people can be helped um, that do not require uh, medicines, you know, and we haven't even used the word prevention here in terms of a social safety net and, you know, housing and employment and education and things like that, that people uh, need, you know, f- for their mental well-being and their relationship satisfaction. Um, but just just to answer specifically to your point, there are uh, legions of stories about the the dangerous uh, anti-sexual side effects of lots of drugs. And, you know, the answer to that is not to give them a drug antidote to the drug side effect from the first drug. I mean, that's, that's an infinite regress and, and that it only goes one way. One of the things that struck me about your work was that after a certain amount of time, you decided to call off your campaign and close it down. And uh, unlike many other people who keep campaigns going forever, you you decided to call it quits and you had a conference and said, thanks a lot, see you later. Why did you do that? Um, You know, the whole thing became rather repetitious rather early on. And I could just see you know, that I was going to be there in, in a wheelchair and a walker rolling out the same arguments for each successive 
drug. And I, I didn't really think that was necessary. So I thought the, the, the better direction was to declare victory uh, and to say, you know, our challenge was to create a space for another model of sexuality, for a challenge to the medicalization of sexuality, and we succeeded. We created a, a challenge, we wrote about it, and the all of our work is frozen on the internet, on the newviewcampaign.org, newviewcampaign.org. Every single thing we ever wrote is there, every fact sheet, every press release, Every video, we and we haven't even talked about female genital cosmetic surgery. That's another session altogether. But everything we wrote and thought about and produced is there. And so I think that's the way to do it, really, for nonprofit organizations. Why, why perpetuate, perpetuate yourself uh, over and over again? Just... Do the best you can while you have the energy, while it's really clear. The world is changing. We, we wrote all that stuff before the internet, really. The internet has created a new landscape. It's going to need some new arguments and some new approaches, some new campaigns. And Leonor, what, what do you hope for now then? I mean, you know, as you say, the internet has changed the landscape. And one of the things that's changed is the access to pornography and, and the whole, um, you know, attitudes towards, towards sex, young, pe- young children being exposed to um, often quite violent pornography. I mean, you know, that there is a real shift out there as well. And what, what would you hope for um, for, our, for our young people as they, as they grow into being sexual beings? You know, se- sex has been uh, around for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> and you know the pleasures of the body are part of of what being alive is all about and i i think that they are there for free i mean that was another thing that bothered me about this all of these drugs is is sex used to be free and i really enjoyed that part anyway Um, it's, it's, you know, I think people have to contend with the obstacles to the pleasures of the body, whether those obstacles come from, you know, the plague of the middle ages or, or the internet of the 21st century, there are always going to be obstacles to the pleasures of the body and they have to be dealt with, understood, analyzed. People need the tools to deal with them, and it's possible. Thank you so much, Leonor. Pleasure to chat. Thanks, Leonor. Great to meet you on this uh, podcast and, and to talk to you. It was really, really a pleasure. That was The Recovery with Dr. Leonor Tifa. A big thanks to Cochrane Sustainable Healthcare's Minna Johansson and Dina Musket-Meng for production. Duncan Jarvis at the BMJ, and to sound guru Jan Mutz. And a very special thanks to my co-host, Fee Godley. It's such fun presenting these podcasts with you. Thanks, Ray. It's been an absolute joy, and we hope that all of you have enjoyed listening to them. 